You are listening to highlights from the Creative Process interview with CEO and founder of My Young Auntie, Oberon Sinclair. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Just tell me a little bit about the founding of My Young Auntie, how it was formed. Well, I started it in 97. Before I started the company, I worked with D Street Records, which was owned by a dear friend of mine called John Baker and his wife, Siggy Golding, was part of Ireland. And I was head of PR and worked, worked with all the bands and artists like Malcolm McLaren, some fantastic PM Dawn, Stereo MCs, amazing, amazing bands. After a couple of years, he said to me, you know, you really should start your own agency. And I said, my gosh, you know, how does one do that? And he said, if you start your own agency, Oberon, I can help you. He'd also sold the company to B2, which was a company owned by Richard Branson. So he was sort of stepping away and moving to Jamaica. And he just wanted to make sure that I was going to be okay, which was an incredible thing for him to do. And we were friends. So I started my company from my apartment in the West Village, which was literally my kitchen with the computer, one of the first computers and a telephone, you know, a rotary telephone. And I started that in 97. And he, at that time, was working with the British artist Jamie Reed to do a retrospective of all his punk work from back in the day, which was sort of like all the images of God Save the Queen, you know, Sex Pistols, all their album covers, Nevermind the Bollocks, all those. And he was doing a retrospective and new lithographs and new colours and said, I'd love you to work on that with me. So I did. And it was a huge, huge retrospective that took place in Soho back in 97, September. And it was a real smash. It was like amazing, amazing show, amazing work. And that sort of was a springboard for my own auntie. And then after that, I was literally sort of called up by Vivian Westwood and I, I sort of thought she'd called the wrong number you know just like would you like to help me with my launch in New York and you know I've always loved fashion but I'd never really worked in it per se so I worked with her on that and that was a lot of fun completely bonkers really fun and you know I just felt like where do you go from here well I met through friends Katie and Andy Spade and Katie was looking for someone to work with her in PR because her company was quite new and I'd met with her and, and I just didn't feel buttoned up, to be honest. I was I was a bit punky pants back then, but I didn't, you know, I've, I've never blow dried my hair. I've never done the matchy matchy thing. So I just, I was very honest and I really did need the job. Um, but I just, I declined it and I said, I'm so honored and it's so sweet, but I just, I don't think I'm right for it. And then Andy took me aside and said, I'm actually going to start a men's brand. And would you be interested in that? And you don't need to be in the office and we could work together with my team. And so I said, yes. And that was one of my first proper accounts. I was working on a lot of music releases with like Sony. I launched my friend's band, Honky Coast. And my friend Richard Fortas, who now plays with Guns N' Roses, was in that band. They were signed to Sony and they were sort of fantastic, dirty rock and roll East Village band. And they were just... I'm still friends with them all. They're amazing. It was a brilliant, brilliant album. And then I worked with Andy and we created Jack Spade with the name. He came up with Jack Spade. He didn't want to call it Andy Spade and created this men's brand, which was really fantastic because he's just so interesting. We still work together. And I got to do 10 years of so many wonderful things. You know, we launched the brand with a canvas by Fold Wallet. And he said, you know, how are we going to, create 
Jack Spade. You know, it, it was a person that didn't exist. So I went away and had the idea of creating 100 bifold canvas wallets or filling them with things that Jack Spade, our invisible man, would have in his wallet or boy would have in his wallet. So we went to the free markets and we filled them with cutout articles from Playboy and this rubbish that a boy would have in his wallet. We filled it with stuff like bits of string, band-aids, a dollar, a casino chip, a beer receipt, a letter from a girlfriend that said, you know, it's over. I don't want to see you anymore. And then I wrapped them in New York Observer newspaper. And then on the inside, on a scrap piece of paper, I just wrote, where's Jack? With my phone number and pencil. And I sent them to all the press. So I had calls from people going like, oh my God, you know, I've got Jack Spade's wallet. And it was brilliant, celebrated by a lot of the big magazines, saying it was one of the best campaigns. And it was done out of fun and curiosity and always trying to make people laugh on some level and not really following any rules. And then we continued to do fun projects that were sort of very marketing heavy, PR driven, marketing driven, creative, fun, emotional. And then we did something called the Honest Campaign where we took, you know, 10 wallets and we had a dear friend of mine, Matt Johnson, who's a great photographer, dropped them around the city and photographed people picking them up. And then we did a survey of who returned them and where they returned them. And we made mini books called The Honest Campaign, which we sold in the Jack Spade stores. And again, you know, people just loved it. So nothing I've ever done has really felt like PR, even though that's sort of what I've said I do. It was really fun and ridiculous and great. And it resonates with people because we've all got inner children. You know, I'm still a little girl at heart. That doesn't go away. You don't suddenly become a grown-up, become a, the most sensible person on the planet. Yeah, I think we all have this longing to return to this, they say, the uncarved lock or something. You know, when you can connect that with brands or stories or artists, when we could remember when life was new. I don't feel like I left that. I still feel like I, I am there. I grew up, but I don't feel like my brain left those memories and those feelings. I changed, you know, I'm a mother of a wonderful daughter, but I still tap into those feelings. I didn't suddenly play a role of a grown-up. I am a grown-up, but I also love children's things and children's toys, and I get inspired by stuff like that. Anything. Doesn't mean because we're grown-ups we have to stop all that stuff. Tell us the concept behind Neuer House and its different locations and how you are involved in it. Well, I met the founders, Alan and Joshua, who started Neuer House in 2013. They are lovely gentlemen. And they called me aside and said, we'd love to get you involved in our co-working space that we're doing. And I had my office here and it was a construction site and I helped them, you know, with the PR and launch and bring in members. Actually, I brought Chris in to have his office here, Jefferson Hack and some other wonderful people to work out of here. And we really curated an interesting community of people and have had really much everyone, a lot of interesting people do talks from Paul Smith, the Salmon Rushdie, to the Wu-Tang Clan, to, you know, Tom Sachs, Ariana Huffington. I mean, a list and I've hosted Prince William and Princess Kate from the UK. We've had some incredible people here and I, I love talking to people and I love hosting these conversations. I did one last night with my dear friend, Carlos Alamar, who was the musical director in a long time collaborator with David Bowie for 30 years. And I just love people's stories. So for me, it's like inspirational. We had the talk with him last night. We had an amazing crowd, a lot of young students from NYU and the new school. And the one thing I like to do is to inspire people, not me, but if I can show them someone's life, it's a way for people to learn. You know, I, I didn't go to college. I 
barely went to school. I left at a very young age. I wasn't really an academic. I was more a visual. And I learned by seeing and by working with people. And that really was my passion. And, you know, we all have different ways of learning and doing. And for me, that was the way for me to learn was to work with people. And I did that at a young age. When you're trying to communicate the history of a product or a company and you have these stories behind it, how do you compress it into the minutiae of, say, the fonts or the colors and all those details that have to communicate so much behind it? I took editors with me to visit these places and I showed them. I didn't hide that stuff. I showed it because I always want the stuff that's hidden to be seen. I want those people that are doing the not so glamorous jobs to be seen. And I think, you know, full disclosure and all these people and all these companies, you know, we want to celebrate people that have been the longest employee, even if it's the women making cups of tea every day. Those people are interesting. Everyone has a story. Everyone's important and everyone wants to feel loved. That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. If someone comes to me and they say, oh, I have a new brand, it's a startup. First of all, I have to like the person. They have to like me. It's a two-way street. And that's the most important thing with anyone in life, not just work, in life. Why do we make friends with it? We make friends with their relationships. And if you connect with someone, magic will happen. If you don't connect with someone, and someone doesn't understand or have the same aesthetic or a similar way of thinking. You have to have something in common with someone. And if you have those qualities, which I look for, just honesty and loyalty and they're genuine, and you just know if you're going to get on with someone or not, and if you don't, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter how much money someone has, the top this, the top that, the top art director, it's just not going to work because that magic, whatever that is, it's not going to be that. And I do believe in magic. I do. Magical stuff, not magical. Anything weird, but I do believe in that energy. I do. I always have. How do you feel that the world of PR marketing has changed? And is there a kind of parallel? How is it adapting to the new scene? I don't know if I've adapted. I mean, I, I know the people I know and I'm old school. I like to connect on the telephone. I like to actually pick the phone up and call people. I like to hear people's voices. I know it's more convenient for people to email and text. I do like actually listening to someone's voice and talking to them on the phone. And I'm still in touch with a lot of editors that I've known, you know, for 25 plus years who started off as juniors. They're now in top positions of editor-in-chiefs, directors, producers, movie stars, pop stars. These are people who I've grown up with who are now in amazing positions. But as far as the medium of PR, it's like any field. It's always going to change. It's going to get more advanced. It's going to get better technology. I adapt. In some ways, but not always. Right. And I'm, I'm always, I'm almost going backwards sometimes, to be honest. No, it makes sense because I think, and it's not a nostalgia, but I think that the increased pace of things, and we've had discussions about this, you know, our technologies get faster and faster, but the human brain is still, you know, we're born with our biology until we invent the implant that completely makes us robot. I'm trying to slow down a little bit. The world in itself is a lot of stress going on in the world, and you know, food. Homelessness, politics. I mean, you stop and think, you could really be not want to get out of bed in the morning. I try to really focus on the good and not the bad as much as possible. You know, I really try to keep my surroundings, you know, we have little roses here that Willow brought into the office. Try to not overload my brain. I can't do it all. I can only do what I can do. And I don't beat myself up and I don't try to be busy for the sake of being busy. I do what I can do and I stop when I need to stop. And the older I get, the more I know less is more.
I'm not trying to do everything. I'm not trying to go to every event. I'm trying to really do what's important for me, my friends and my family and my business. And that's all I can do. So tell me, with all the artists, the creatives, and also within the business sector that you have collaborated with or observed, what were some of those lessons that were really important to you that you learned from this? Like, wow, that's an approach. That's something that I'll remember. I mean, for me, the money part was important because it's made me feel secure. And when people feel secure and not stressed about money, which we all have done at some point in our lives, it gives you the freedom to do what you want. And that's not a case of needing to buy stuff, but just the freedom to not have to worry in these stressful times of the world, you know, and really choosing the right partners to work with and trusting your gut and always pushing the envelope, which is what I've tried to do a little bit without being obnoxious, you know, in a, in a polite way. I've worked with so many different people and fields from music to travel to food to all kinds of companies. I've loved everyone I've worked with, really. I really have. And even the employees I've had that work for me. I'm, I just feel incredibly blessed. You know, it's 25 years, which went very, very quickly. I do know that time goes very quickly. And now I'm just, I'm very appreciative of my time and value it. And I think that's the one thing I'm super aware of now is time and not wasting it. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.